Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible in Life podcast. My name is John, and I am the creator and host of the Bible in Life. And on the day that this episode is released, I will be flying out to speak at a men's retreat uh, Thursday through Saturday, and then I fly back home Sunday morning to land in town at 8 and to preach at a church that morning. So it's going to be a busy handful of days. And I mention that simply to say, if you think of it, would you pray for me? Pray not only for strength, but most of all, pray for fruitfulness, that through these efforts, God would do a good work in the lives of the men at the retreat and in the lives of the people at the church, that he would bear much fruit through it. Even though it's a lot for me, may the Lord do something great with it. So if you if you think about it, if you think about me over the next handful of days, would you pray for me and pray for the Lord to bear much fruit? On our last episode of The Bible in Life, we started a short series of podcasts where I'm just offering some reflections out of the book of Philippians, and I'm kind of packaging it under this title of, What's Our Focus in Life? Uh, Your Life's Focus. And in this episode, I just want to reflect out of Philippians chapter 2, and the, the the context, the like life setting for this for us is our relationships, whatever kind of relationships uh, we have. And we have lots of different ones. And the fact is, is relationships aren't always easy. Uh, I have friendships that petered out years ago and have never really picked back up. Some have done so for perfectly natural reasons. Some have done so under duress and stress. And it's unfortunate and it's sad, right? Um, We know that um, marriages frequently um, are tough or are hard. Some end very badly. And yet, people still keep getting married. Why is that? Why is it that even though relationships are hard, friendships turn sour, marriages uh, break apart, um, there is stress in families, why is it that even though that's all the case, we keep pursuing relationship? And it has something to do with how we're made. We're made for relationship. We're made in the image of God. God is love and three in one, and thus God exists from all eternity in relationship. And so we're made and built for relationship, and we keep pursuing them. And what that means is this, is that in God's plan of redemption, his goal was not just to bring together a collection of individuals with their own individual relationship with God. God's plan was actually to form a people through whom he could display his wisdom and his character. So your relationship with God is personal, but it's not individual. When God calls you to himself, he also calls you uh, to his people. And God's plan, God's goal is to form a people who genuinely care about each other, who work overtime to learn how to get along with each other so that in and through them, God could display his love and his grace and his truth and his wisdom. That's God's plan. And so in Philippians chapter 2, The Apostle Paul, writing to this church in the city of Philippi in the first century, that is um, having just some 
kind of early onset relational struggle and tensions. Not hasn't developed real bad. It's not like the Corinthians where the whole thing has gone to pot and there's fractures and factions and all that. We're not there yet. There's just some relational tension, some social posturing, some bickering and not getting along. And so Paul wants to address that in this letter. He was super close with the church of Philippi. He spent a lot of time there. Uh, they were always invested in his ministry and there was a fond affection for them. So Paul wants to try to address uh, some of this relational friction and he does so in chapter 2 by giving what I think is one, one of, probably the, I would say, single most important relationship text in the entire Bible. Now, that's probably an overstatement, but I really believe that. If we could learn what this text says, it would really help all our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, our relationships with coworkers, our relationships with people in the church. And if we continually and increasingly get better what this text says, um, we would uh, do a better job at living in harmony with one another. And so Paul begins Philippians chapter 2 by pointing out some of these shared kind of faith experiences that we have as the people of God. He says in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship or partnership of the Holy Spirit, if there's any affection and compassion, these are all experiences that we have by coming into Christ. When he says if, he doesn't mean if, and he doesn't know if there is. This particular word in Greek means if there is and there is. It's a, a more like since. Since we have this mutual encouragement in Christ, since we have this comfort and consolation of this mutual love in Jesus, since we have this partnership forged by God's Spirit in us, you have the Spirit and I have the Spirit and thus we're one. Since all this is true, Paul says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, Live in harmony. Live in harmony. Since God has knit us together and brought us together in Christ, live in harmony with one another. Well, how do you do that? Right? Like, how do we do that? We've already said relationships can be difficult. People are different. They have different backgrounds. We all bring uh, with us into our various relationships, our marriages, our extended families. Uh, we marry into extended families. Or we all bring with us into all these different relationships, these friendships and networks. We bring with us a whole lot of baggage. All our background, our um, the good and the bad from our family of origin, the uh, learned ways and strategies of doing relationships from our family of origin, um, the hurts and resentments from uh, past mistreatment and our defense mechanisms. We bring with us into all our relationships in, into Christ all these kinds of things, all this baggage. Well, Paul, in verses 3 and 4, what follows what we just read, gives what I believe to be the single most uh, important bit of relational advice we will ever get for living in harmony with one another. And he says this in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Notice that. Do how much? Do nothing. So how much self-focus should there be in our relationships with others? Like 5%? 3%? 1%? No, nothing. Nothing. Do nothing 
from selfishness or empty conceit. And we can't just drift along on the cultural waves here. Um, the cultural waves of probably every culture, but the culture I'm familiar with here in North America is so individualistic, so self-serving, so self-centered, so focused on my preferences, my needs getting met, my rights, and all of that, that we, we have to go against the grain here. We have to be willing to go against the flow. Do nothing from selfishness, from self-seeking, from self-serving, from self-promotion, from self-focus. like Do nothing from doing whatever it takes to get ahead. Do nothing from whatever it takes to get your own way. Do nothing from whatever it takes to line your own pocket. This word selfishness in Philippians 2-3 was actually used, one of the ways it was used in Paul's day was in political circles to describe how politicians, even back then, um, how they maneuvered and bargained and made backroom deals and how they connived to get ahead and get reelected and maintain their positions of power and get what they wanted, right? Like, do nothing from that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, arrogance and self-serving. Do nothing from that, but replace all of that with this. But with humility, he says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Now, let's just pause and reflect on the word humility a second. The basic idea of this word that's translated humility is lowliness. Lowliness. Now, how does that strike you? Being lowly. um, Practicing lowliness. How does that strike you? Typically, we don't like that. We don't want to be treated as lowly. We don't want to, you know, be lowly. We, that doesn't strike us well. But it's really important that we understand that this particular word, as taught by Jesus and his apostles, doesn't mean things like self-loathing. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean putting ourselves down. It doesn't mean feeling unimportant or worthless. That's not what Jesus means by humility. What humility means in this context is it means not being full of yourself. Don't be full of yourself, full of your own, right? Wanting to serve yourself, wanting to get your own way. Humility means um, recognizing that we didn't make ourselves, that God made us. We exist for him and for his purposes. Um, Humility means that whatever skills and abilities we have, they're actually gifts from God to be used for his honor and for other people's good. Humility means that our eyes aren't on ourselves, but our eyes are on God and on others. So it's a whole new mindset, right? Humility of mind. Uh, we're not focused on ourselves, so we're free to think of others. That's what's going on here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. In fact, I like the way Peter Kreeft summarizes humility in a very succinct sort of way. He says, humility is thinking less about yourself, not thinking less about of yourself. Do you catch the distinction? Humility is thinking less about yourself. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's a whole new operating system for us, one where other uh, people are more important than ourselves. So do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Put others ahead of yourself. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We consider others as more important. You're more important than me. And that's really our basic operating principle in relationships with others. You're more important than me. Your needs, your well-being, 
your interests are important to me because they're important to you and you matter to me. It's not just getting what I want. It's how can I benefit you? So pause and just think about this question. I really want you to just maybe even pause this recording and take a second to reflect on this and maybe even write some thoughts down. If, listen, if someone considered you more important than themselves, what kinds of things would they do? If someone considered you more important than themselves, what would they do? Think about that. Like I said, maybe even pause the recording and reflect on that. What are some ways someone would demonstrate to you that they considered you more important than themselves? Now, here's the thing. When Paul says, consider others more important than yourself, what he's saying is, go and do those same things for others. Go and do those same things for others. Um, consider others more important than yourself. In fact, Paul amplifies this in verse 4. He says, And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. Um, don't look out for your own personal interests, for what's convenient for you, for the things you prefer, for what benefits you, for your needs, for your pleasure, for your happiness, right? Like, instead, look out for the interest of others. Take a genuine interest in other people, their likes, their preferences, their needs, their stuff. Um, Jesus's way of relationships is you first, not me first. You're more important than me. Um, and putting others ahead of yourself and serving others. And that, that can happen in just simple sorts of ways. I remember when I was a young, newly married homeowner, my wife and I had bought our first house. Um, I was uh, working on a, the outdoor hose bib pipe. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Didn't realize that those pipes have 12, 15, 18 inches of extension under the house. So I was going to replace the, the hose bib pipe and I, I didn't even, I literally didn't know what I was doing. So I broke that thing off underneath the house. Now I got water running under my house. I didn't know what to do. Brand new at this homeowner thing. I didn't have a dad, right? Because I didn't have a dad growing up. So I'm a student in college at this time. I call the academic dean from the college. Um, and he, because he cared about me and he took a genuine interest in me, he says, uh, I'll be up right away. It was a Saturday morning. And he actually came over to my house with his tools, crawled under the house with me, and helped me figure out how to fix this thing. That's, that's taking a genuine interest in somebody else, giving up a few hours of your Saturday morning to serve somebody else. Um, you first, not me first. I've experienced this in a number of ways. I had some friends from a previous church I was at. They were all part of my small group. And... Uh, they gave an entire day to pull off, help pull off my daughter's wedding and reception. I mean, gave tons of time and tons of energy on the day of her wedding and reception, preparing food and cooking because of the way we did the wedding and the reception. It was a you first sort of thing, caring for others. And that's what this is really saying is um, you first, not me first. Uh, consider others more important than yourself. This principle 
would benefit our marriage. It would benefit our parenting and our relationship with our kids. It would benefit our relationship with our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends at church. Um, we would be less focused on making sure we got our way and we would be doing a better job at caring for others. And so this principle, I hope you can see how all-encompassing it is and how transformative it is. And it's all about others. And that means it, in my context, it, it violates kind of our American way of life, right? Like in, in America, it's like, I'm important. I count. I'm independent. And I have rights, you know, right? That's sort of our American way of approach. And it's a very me first sort of way. And I think that in, it shows up in all cultures and in all countries in various fashions, in various ways. And this challenges all of that. We've entered into a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, with a new culture and new values. And one of the key principles when it comes to relationships in that new culture is you first, not me first. Now, how do we become the kind of people who actually live that way? And why would we want to do it anyhow? Like, like, what, what is the motivation for living this way? I mean, that, that's, that's hard, like laying down ourself for others, laying down our preferences, giving up our time, taking a genuine interest in others. I mean, sometimes it's easier than others, but there's some people with whom that's challenging. And, and over the course of the long haul, that can be ex extremely difficult. So why would we do that? Well, it, I mean, obviously, maybe part of the reason is because It'll make our relationships better. It really will. There'll be less friction and more harmony. And so maybe that's a little bit it, but it can't be the whole reason um, because when I'm exhausted or when I'm frustrated or when I'm just enough annoyed with somebody else, right, and I don't feel like it, I'm probably not going to put other people first. So even though it'll make my relationships better, it's not enough to make me the kind of person who can do that. So there's got to be something bigger. What is the more powerful motivational factor for living this way? And that's where Paul goes next in verse 5. Look what he says. He says, have this attitude, that is, have this mindset, this humility of mind, this self-emptying uh, mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, that is, he existed in the very essence of God, everything that made God God, he had. He existed in the very form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that phrase, a thing to be grasped, means to be used for his own advantage. He didn't regard his equality with God as something used to advantage himself and serve himself and benefit himself. Instead, verse 7 he emptied himself. He poured himself out, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage, verses 5 through 8, describes a downward slide into lowliness for Jesus. In other words, it, it asks the question, how low would you go, Jesus, for the sake of others? How low would you go to put others first? Well, he would go from heaven to earth, from existing in the form of God in heaven um, to 
taking on the form of a man on earth. That's pretty low. That's, uh, that's, that's stepping down and being lowly for the sake of others. But it's not low enough. Jesus would go further. He would become human and he would give up the rights and privileges and honor and status of being God. Would you do that, Jesus? He would. And that's pretty low, but he'll go even lower. Um, he'll embody, this passage says, the essence of servanthood. He'll become a slave, no honorable position, no palace fit for a king. He'll lower himself to the position of a servant. That's pretty low, but he goes even lower. Um, if, and how low is that? Well, he'll serve to the point of death if necessary. Jesus, really, you'll go that low? Yes, he says in this passage, and he'll go even lower. How low will he go? I mean, how much lower could you go than dying for someone? Well, Jesus says he'll go to the bottom of the bottom, even death on a cross. That was the lowest place you could go in the Roman world of that day. That was the most shameful, disgraceful, dishonorable, horrific way to die. So much so that Roman citizens were exempt from it. That's how low Jesus went. And so how do we become the kind of people who can live this way, who can lower ourselves for the sake of others? How do we become the kind of people who can say you first, not me first? How do we become the kind of people who can take a genuine interest in others? We do so by fixing our gaze on Jesus's humble, others first sort of life. We fix our gaze on Jesus putting putting ourselves first. Like he put you first. He didn't serve himself. He served you. We fix our gaze on Jesus, lowering himself from heaven to earth, from uh, be, being a human to being a lowly servant human, to dying for us and dying on the cross. That's how we do it. We fill ourselves up um, by looking at Jesus. And he is both the pattern and the motivation and the source of that kind of self-emptying love. And so we just keep fixing our gaze on Jesus, meditating on it, absorbing it, saying, Jesus, if you did that for me, help me to do that for others. Um, we do simple tasks around the house with the prayer, Jesus, just as you served me, help me to serve others. Uh, we, um, when called upon to go beyond what we feel like doing, we say, Jesus, you didn't feel like going to the cross, but you did it for me. Help me to do this for others. And so we fix our gaze on Jesus. And in doing so, we increasingly become the kind of person who does nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility. We pour ourselves out for the sake of others, just like Jesus poured himself out for us. All right, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible in Life podcast. I pray that that not only is a challenge to you, but an encouragement to you to lay down your life not just for the ideal people in your mind, but for the actual people in your everyday life, just like Jesus laid down his life for you. So may that be true of you and of me as we live as disciples of Jesus in this world. I pray you have a wonderful week in Christ. I pray you walk with Jesus day by day, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. <music>